0: speaking logically is brought to you by etf logic the leading provider of analytics and portfolio analysis tools for financial advisors no information within this should be considered trading or investment advice. hey guys and welcome to episode three of speaking logically i'm scott mckenna and
1: i'm emil tarozzi
0: and today we are joined by vance bars well strategist and founder of Your Dedicated Fiduciary.
2: Thank you very much for having me on. It is a sincere pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, Vance, uh, we met in person at Inside ETFs, right? But a lot has changed since then. Why don't you give us a little bit of background on you and your experiences in the industry?
2: Sure thing. So I founded Your Dedicated Fiduciary as a fiduciary financial planner after almost, 10 years of consulting financial advisors around the country so for winding the clock way back to 2007 there was an institutional alternative investment platform that had access to big names such as SAC Capital, John Paulson, Winton Capitals, Citadel, KKR and a number of others and that particular firm whose name I don't think I can mention because for some reason, compliance hasn't caught up to the way business is doing in 2020. But nonetheless, uh, they had this side project idea of bringing these investment strategies to uh, intermediaries, broker dealers, RIAs, custodians, etc. So I was hired originally to build out the infrastructure of that platform and ultimately to travel the country and consult advisors on how to use those managers for their high net worth and ultra high net worth clients. So I have spent thousands of hours with financial advisors in wire houses, independent broker dealers, registered investment advisors, and last but certainly not least family offices and i learned a lot more than i had originally bargained for in that role because i was in meetings when selling agreements were procured and was able to meet with several heads of home offices because of that role and because the firm i was with was for all intents and purposes small you know it wasn't a major um, household name in the long only ETF space or or mutual fund space, for example. So I lived out of a suitcase. I loved it until I didn't. A few things in my personal life changed and I decided to resign from that role and took some time off and I r- did something that I think most of us fantasize about doing at some time in their life. I grew a great big beard and really long hair and I rode around the country on a Harley Davidson for about a year, and it was an absolute blast. And now that I am a um, happily married man and father of two kids, I will tell all of the listeners, you should never, ever, ever ride a motorcycle. It is remarkably dangerous and should be avoided at all times. But back then, I thought it would be fun to do, and I did that, and then ultimately moved back to San Diego and founded my firm. Good to cross some things off your bucket list, I assume. What do they say? YOLO. You only live once. (laughs) What what kind of motorcycle was it? What kind of Harley? It was a um, Harley um, Street Glide that uh, belonged to my biological father, whom I had never met. And I've never actually shared that publicly on. Any podcasts, but um, I grew up having never met my natural father, if you will. And um, we were supposed to meet a couple times. He didn't show up. But as luck would have it, when um, a family member of mine <clears throat> had a, a pretty massive stroke, my grandmother had a massive stroke back in 2014, I resigned from my former career. She was living in morgantown west virginia so i went to morgantown and uh, as luck would have it his widow reached out to me and said hey i would love for you to have this bike so i met her and met many of his friends and they ceremoniously gave me this harley davidson and then ultimately when my grandmother transitioned to the spiritual side i thought you know what this is my opportunity to throw a leg over this thing and ride around the country, and it was the experience of a lifetime. Oh, that's that's actually a really good story.
0: I've heard that story about three or four times now, just from hanging out with you in person and and listening to some of the other media stuff that you've done. I love it. It's I...
1: yeah. So you know your your origin story is fascinating, and. So today, you know, you, I guess you have a breadth of clients. Can you talk to us a little bit more about like who your clients are and like what kind of problems do they come to you with?
2: Sure. So I don't really have a typical client per se. <laughs> Commonly they have a particular pain point. It might be that they have an upcoming business sale or they are tired of the banking blender or they are related to or friends with a current client who says, hey, there's this guy, his name is Vance Barce. He founded your dedicated fiduciary, and he really starts with a clean slate, tabula rasa, if you will, and takes all of your estate planning, your tax returns, your business planning, your investment accounts, your insurance policies and really looks in a thorough way to figure out if you have any planning gaps.
0: So, there's a lot of different types of financial advisors, right, Vance? How do you define yourself and how do you fit within that landscape?
2: In the near decade that I spent consulting financial advisors, there are brokers, there are true fiduciaries, there are investment advisors. There are whole life insurance agents whose business cards say that they're a financial advisor. I mean, there's really no standard minimum value that a practitioner needs to bring to the public. And the public is often confused. So I realized that trying to onboard clients by inventing a better mousetrap, which in my opinion doesn't exist. It's all about low cost. It's all about tax efficiency. It's all about tax smart planning. The I have a better mousetrap in my mind was not a viable strategy for client acquisition. But by sharing that I used to consult Financial advisors around the country, many of whom are so called award winning, quote unquote, or leading, quote unquote. There are many strategies that they typically don't provide either because they're not specialized in those types of strategies, for example, advanced planning, charitable planning, you know, how to leverage an estate planning attorney. Um, to transfer really complex businesses and properties and so forth, or because those advisors are with firms where they just simply don't offer that. It's gather assets, gather assets, gather assets, charge the rat fee, we'll see you in three to six to nine to 12 months, and you know onward they go. So I wanted to create an entity where the clients served by that entity understand that the goal is to be authentic, transparent and bring value in a meaningful way.
0: In general, you know, what do you think are the biggest gaps that most advisors leave open?
2: That is a million dollar question and I really appreciate you asking it. One, the gap that commonly exists between the tax world and the investment world. Take your right hand and you open it in front of you. You Take your left hand and open it in front of you. Your right hand represents the investment world. Your left hand represents the tax world. You would think that at the core of our industry, those two worlds would come together because for non-retirement assets, investment decisions, buys, sells, et cetera, can have tax implications, much in the same way that retirement planning, how much you contribute per year, can have tax implications. And one of the things that I noticed is that CPAs were often reactive, meaning they got the tax data from the client, they went over to typically LACERT, which is the program that many of them use, they plug and chug, they spit out the return, they go, here you go. Mrs. and Mr. Client. Here's the invoice. And secondarily is the estate planning that clients need. Not because financial advisors and or financial planners are estate planners. I'm sure that someone out there is both, but commonly they're not. And it's not the advisor's job to serve as an estate planner. In fact, they're not qualified to do that unless they go to law school and pass the bar. But when you're a financial advisor, you get to know your clients, you get to know what makes them tick. You understand what their passions are. You hopefully will have access to their tax returns. You can see if they have loss carry forward. You can see if they have highly appreciated concentrated stock. You can see data and information that when paired with what you know about the family can bring value to that family so if there are two areas where i hope financial advisors spend more time and provide particular emphasis with respect to serving their clients it would be in bridging the gap between the tax and investment worlds and really looking at their estate planning to make sure that the documents they need to have in place are not only in place, but also reflective of that which the family desires.
1: That's a very good point. You say that, you know, when you look at tax planning, you have to look at really not just the assets that you're managing, but really the big picture. And that's, I think, hard to do. It's hard to manage and really hard to understand. Have you found, you know, software or processes out there that, That make that easier for advisors?
2: No, I have not. I'd love to invent one so that uh, (laughs) maybe then we can all hang out on my private jet in my private pool and enjoy the (laughs) private life. I'm just kidding. Um, My understanding is that there are a couple that exist. I have yet to truly ascertain academically how a bot or an algorithm can understand the tax loss harvesting opportunities available and the human's desires insofar as what they wanna do, uh, not only with respect to their investments, but also their estate planning. For example, let's say that you have a theoretical, uh, highly concentrated tech stock. If you purchased multiple lots of that, oftentimes software will report it as an average cost basis. Now I'm an investment advisor representative who uses Commonwealth Financial Network's corporate RIA for several reasons. But one of the things I really love about Commonwealth, and there are many, is that they have a software that allows the conversion of the average cost basis to the very specific tax lot cost basis. So let's take another example, where you have a family who's an advisor, or as the case may be former advisor, loaded them up into high cost tax, inefficient mutual funds. Most people, unless they have a pain point, like their financial advisor. And one of the things I've noticed in onboarding families is that They might look at me and go, oh, you want my tax returns? Well, you know, my current gal or current guy hasn't ever asked for that. Uh, But sure, I'll give it to you. And by the way, you know, I seem to have this really annoying capital gains drag every year. Sure enough, I can look at the Schedule D. And I think for compliance purposes, I have to share I'm not a CPA. I don't offer tax advice. I don't offer tax preparation services, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I do, however, look at tax returns typically daily to really understand the fact pattern for the estate. So if I look at the schedule D and I see that every year there's 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 50,000 at a client with 85,000 in capital gains, because of the tax inefficient mutual funds that the former advisor had put into their non-retirement accounts, I can take, that investment account and those specific holdings, and I can convert the average cost to the tax lot specific cost because then I can look at which of those specific tax lots are at a gain, which are at a loss, which are roughly break even. Um, yeah,
1: no, that that does make sense, and I think we're—it's uh, <laughs> certainly stuff that's near and dear. to to uh, what we do at, at ETF Logic. Things that we're uh, studying more and more certainly gets into the weeds, but we love the weeds. So <laughs> I guess jumping around a little bit, um, very curious about where you see some of the big regulatory headwinds or tailwinds that th- there are certainly a lot of regulatory changes that have shown up over the last year, notably things like Reg BI. Curious what you think about that You know, how do you see it shaping the industry?
2: I think that Reg BI was a step in the right direction, but my personal opinion is that it was a baby step. In medicine, you, as a licensed doctor, have to take the Hippocratic Oath, which is first, do no harm. It boggles my mind that we don't have the same thing or a very close equivalent in financial services. <clears throat> the public doesn't know what the public doesn't know. <laughs> to quote the the famous Rumsfeld quote, which was uh, not a very good one, but <laughs> the point is the public doesn't know about financial services. And so when Reg BI was passed, you know. It, depending on an, a financial advisor's affiliation, for example, are they an RIA only? Are they an investment advisor representative or IAR only? Are they broker dealer and RIA? Are they a hybrid? Are they dual? The client doesn't know the difference between those two. Typically, like overwhelmingly, typically, and. To allow financial advisors the opportunity to provide a form, but have additional and multiple pages of disclosure that the client is to read and thoroughly understand, I just can't really wrap my head around that because let's, let's back away from the ivory tower theoretical universe and come back down to reality you're serving a busy client, or you're serving a retiree. Are they gonna to wanna to sit around and read through pages and pages of legalese that use very contextually specific nomenclature and information that they're more than likely not familiar with, and go, okay, well, this is regulation best interest. So I'm not bashing Reg BI. I think it's a step in the right direction. My personal belief is that we should have a true fiduciary standard that requires financial practitioners to adhere to the absolute highest degree of integrity, morality, and ethics. I don't know if we'll see one anytime soon. I know that um, not everyone agrees with me and that's totally fine. Sometimes I think that there are institutions that don't want a fiduciary standard because, for example, it might not be in the best interest of their clients to charge them an advisory cost and simultaneously put them into an asset management company or, said differently, investment products of an investment firm that they own. I, I just go, I, come on. I mean, that that's almost like the um, the, the barbershop model, right? So we're gonna charge the barber time for the chair and we're also gonna charge the client walking in. So um, let's go ahead and charge for investment advisory and theoretically financial planning and possibly some trust planning or trust administration, et cetera, et cetera. But, While we're doing that, we're going to also put you into our portfolio models, which conveniently might have investment products that are managed by a company that we own. And I think that educated consumers are realizing the inherent conflict in that model, although I could make the argument that if those products are in the best interest of the client, and that's a whole separate conversation, then it might make sense. But I think you catch my drift. You know, I would love to see the day that the financial practitioners are required to bring maximum value and serve clients um, in a way that is truly in their best interest, not just with respect to products, but also strategy implementation um, and in between.
0: So I hate to get political, but it seems like in this administration and recently, a lot of the rules that have been coming out are very pro putting the due diligence on the end investor, right? So Reg BI and like the ETF rule, for instance, do you think that might change with any kind of political shift that might happen?
2: It could. And I love politics. I find it academically fascinating. I have yet in my 40 plus years to see a politician campaign on a number of things and then deliver 100% on those things. (laughs) You hit a certain point of disillusionment. Having grown up right outside of DC, you also become acutely aware that many politicians might say one thing and do another based on funding. And campaign contributions. And for me personally, it doesn't take too long to feel grimy. I would hope that if we have a shift in the political winds, uh, or if the said differently, and I guess more pointedly, if the pendulum went to the left, I would hope that the next administration, whenever that is, um, would take the initiative to bring a true fiduciary standard to the industry. And, you know, Scott, I have uh, not made friends in some circles because they go, well, you know, um, just because you make a commission doesn't mean that, you know, you're a bad person or that, you know, you're, you're violating what's in the best interest of the client. You know what? look at it on a case-by-case basis. If doing an A-share in a 529 plan where the investment holding period is going to be 7, 10, 15, 20 years, 18 years, whatever the case may be, then what does the math say, right? Forget opinion, forget conjecture. What does the data and what does the math say is in the best interest of the client? And I would hope, that we would see something um, to that effect.
1: That's a good retrospective on some of the recent regulatory changes shifting the industry. Beyond regulatory and regulations, what are some of the big themes that you see in the coming years?
2: Potentially higher taxes. I mean, you know, the treasury, which um, (laughs) uh, I have dubbed as the shotgun wedding between the Federal Reserve and the treasury, Eventually that has to get paid in theory, although we could continue to deficit spend. And you know, I remember 20 years ago, people going, oh, the national deficit is so terrible, we're gonna get crippled in taxes. And here we are, right? With respect to the industry, I think we will continue to see fee compression. That's an obvious one. I think that we will continue to see uh, the regulatory landscape evolve toward a fiduciary standard because remember there's also state level or state specific regulations i would hope that our industry learns how to maintain compliance but also allow financial advisors to do business like so many other businesses in 2020 you know you you, i understand Um, the issue with endorsements and, um, I I just, you know, I look at other industries and I go, people use Yelp, people use Google people like it's 2020 West Virginia has high speed internet for crying out loud. Like with all the smart people that we have, particularly attorneys making as much money as they do, we have to have the ability has to exist in my mind. It's got to exist to to allow our industry to conduct business in ways that other industries conduct business. You know what I did today, gentlemen? I got my haircut. Yes, I wore a mask. Yes, I wore gloves and yes, I was careful. It was amazing. I'm like, wow, I went from shaggy dog to current day Vance and it was (laughs) truly a wonderful experience. How did I find that barber? I simply went on to Google and I typed in best rated barber near me. And you know what I did? I read through reviews and I'm like, I can't believe we can't do this in this industry. Like within reason, right? So I I just, I hope that uh, the industry provides the infrastructure to not only maintain compliance with standards and and regulations, but so that, that we can as an industry, conduct business like it's 2020, not 1987, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And, and, And number four, I think as wealth transfers from boomers to next gen, financial advisors are going to need to learn how to have a meaningful conversation with women because statistically men die first and one of the things I used to see commonly is male advisor, male client with female spouse and the two men would just talk at and with one another and it was as if the female had no voice whatsoever. That's a problem. I think that will affect advisors. And concurrently, advisors need to learn how to have meaningful conversation with the younger generation. We all love to bag on millennials. Yeah, bruh. I got my headpiece on, bruh. Hashtag bruh. Like I'm trending on Twitter, bruh. Like headset, AirPods, not headset. <laughs> I hope I didn't offend you, Scott. <laughs> Free hugs advances, house, bruh. Anyway, I sit back. And people make jokes about it, and they're largely funny. But that generation is going to ostensibly inherit a lot of money. They are a purpose-driven, meaning-seeking, and very commonly philanthropically-oriented generation, which is interesting because so many of them grew up staring at computer screens or phones. I'm part of the latchkey generation. You know, mom and dad both worked. We get off the bus. Back in those days, you could just walk from bus stop to your house. It's like a quarter mile uphill both ways through the snow and the sleet and tornadoes, right? Mm -hmm. Life was tough, man. But now you have a generation that is very social media savvy, very smart, and they like to see meaning in the things that they do. This is why we've seen things like ESG and impact investing really become of interest among millennials. And it's not just millennials, but I've noticed that when I receive questions on ESG and impact investing, it's either from families that really want to make the world a better place, or it's from younger members of multi-generational families who go, look, I realize I'm fortunate that we had a business or we had real estate or we had both, or, uh, you know, mom or dad worked for decades at a company and we able to save. And I want to make sure that I do my part to give back.
0: That's really interesting. You know, ESG is a big thing that we're looking at in terms of our portfolio analysis tools. And I feel like every time I do a demo, it's either a younger advisor, you know, under the age of 40, that's like, wow, that's really cool. Or it's an advisor that it seems like they're getting into ESG or even starting to look at it just based on a client request, like their client is saying, you know, I want to know what kind of impact my investments have, you know, maybe based off an article that they read or something like that.
1: Yeah. Uh, Those are, I think, a really good overview. One of the things you touched on was this uh, intergenerational wealth transfer and, uh, one of, I guess you touched on sort of one of the nuances there is that a lot of that transfer, transfer will happen to women, uh, towards women. so uh, very good point um, about kind of the advisor relationship towards women.
0: Yeah, I mean, your anecdote before about the male advisor only talking to the husband and kind of ignoring the wife, that seems so old school to me. I mean, it, that people are still behaving and and operating their businesses in those fashions, whether it's financial services or any other industry. But I guess that kind of goes along with what it is that financial advisors need to do to adapt in order to meet the new demands of, of this new generation, right?
2: But it's important for financial advisors to kind of take a step back away from the portfolio management, if they're even doing that, many of them, again, plug and chug, put it into the home office model, see you in three to six to nine, and uh, come to our holiday dinner soiree, we'll see you then. But if they're focusing on the investments, I invite them to take a step back, look at the big picture. Who is the family? What makes them tick? What are their pain points? What are they passionate about? And What planning strategies, very specifically, what planning strategies can you bring into their lives to help them live a more meaningful life of fulfillment? Because ultimately, that's what we all want. What's the point of jumping on the wheel and trying to run faster and faster and faster to get our heart rate and blood pressure up to go nowhere? People don't want that. People want fulfillment. And in my mind, that's the job of a comprehensive financial planner.
0: So I have one more question. Uh, obviously we met on Fintwit, uh, you know, social media is a very powerful tool to connect with people. I, I always see a lot of people getting, you know, advisors especially, they're always, you guys are always complaining about, you know, getting these messages from these guys who provide, who are promising. All these leads right though i'm gonna get you qualified leads uh i'm i'm curious and i've always been a little bit curious about you know advise advisors and and prospecting you know for you what's been the most proven strategy for getting new clients
2: oh i i love it i absolutely love it so i have been seeking the silver bullet the one thing that takes me from 50-plus families to 100 to maybe 150 as fast as possible. I have been seeking unobtainium. I just don't think it exists. Um, I have a few thoughts to share on this. One, the number of clients I have acquired through social media is slim to none and slim left town. Like It is rapidly approaching zero because that's what it's always been. I I think about this, and I, I think it's so funny that social media is so regulated, not because it's funny. And I understand the point, because the reality is, you know, so many of the regulations that we have in this industry are because people were doing those things. Like it's it's not a crime to be a good human. Like you can't, in my mind, on a moral level, you can't take a full testimonial that was contrived and blast it out to the public. Like, stop, come on. Like, let's get back to earth. Let's be level-headed. Let's be good people and lead with integrity. And some people might be rolling their eyes and that's fine. But again, in my mind, if you are a practitioner in the financial services industry, you, me, and all of us should be held to the equivalent of the Hippocratic Oath of, or in medicine. In fact, Andrea Riquier of MarketWatch reached out to me for a story on this very subject as it relates to Reg BI when it was passed. So on social media, I I just, I can't imagine that the quote unquote ideal client, however people define it, million investable, two and a half million investable, 500,000 investable, 50 million private wealth. People, in my experience, no one's sitting there over breakfast on a Sunday, scrolling through LinkedIn, going, oh, "Hey Janice, get over here, bring a cup of coffee. I saw this really, really great post. Who, who is this? This Vance Bars, and send me a LinkedIn message. I only got thirty nine thousand other ones. This is our guy, honey. This <laughs> is the dude. Like, where has this guy been?" all our lives while we have been in the banking blender hot dang hallelujah prayers are answered like it just i don't see it happening right and the same thing if you're running a a huge company or even a small company you're busy you got kids you got travel your back hurts you got a mortgage maybe two of them because you got a lake house are you really sitting around and thumbing through Twitter? at the risk of, uh, you know, wearing your thumbs out and getting some type of medical disease in your joints. Probably not. I fought joining Twitter for so long. I remember when Twitter was the go-to social platform over 10 years ago. And everyone's like, you gotta go on Twitter. You gotta go on Twitter. I'm like, I want, I can't edit it Two, originally. I think you couldn't delete it. I'm like, Maybe maybe I have a misspelling. Maybe there's a grammatical error. Maybe uh, Maybe I just kind of changed my mind. So I really only started using Twitter about 18 months ago. And I have found it to be very helpful in terms of meeting other industry folks. The main reason that I joined Twitter was to follow an economist friend of mine. She lives in Dallas and fantastic thought leader, and a, just, a, a, you know, I love all the content that she produces. Her name is Danielle DiMartino, and that was ultimately the genesis for me joining Twitter, but I never really used it until about 18 months ago, and it's been largely wonderful, and I say largely because sometimes I'll tweet something out, and, and these random people you don't even know just come chiming in with Gallons of negativity. It's like, whoa, what are you like? I don't even know who you are. It's just so bizarre to me. Um, But getting back to client acquisition, no, I have never onboarded a client through social media. If I do, you'll be the first person that I call. Most of the clients I have onboarded in the last three years, it's just been an idiosyncratic, unexpected, unique kind of experience. For example, I hopped on an elevator and Scott, you know me, I've never met a stranger. I get on an elevator. I'm at the university club in downtown San Diego and this woman gets on right behind me. And I looked at her and I go, you look happy. And she looks at me and she goes, I'm fresh out of a divorce and I'm about to sell my company. I am as happy as happy can be. And I'm like, well, look at that. Sometimes the universe just has a way of working itself out. And she ended up coming on board because her former advisor who was at a a wirehouse, had never given her a voice and never talking about charitable planning and never discussed her tax return profile and on and on and on. And she felt very underserved, not only because she didn't have a voice, but because in her mind, she had not been provided the value for which she and her former husband We're eligible. Another client, I hopped on a flight from San Diego going up to Oakland, it was a 7, 10 a.m. flight. And the very last person to get on the flight is this woman who sits down next to me. She goes, why are you dressed so nicely on a Saturday? And I said, well, I'm headed up to the Bay Area to go help this tech family with their high-level money problems. And she goes, well, I have high-level money problems. And we just started talking. So there's been no real science. Again, it's not a very specific profile. Some financial advisors have a very specific profile that they serve. Uh, railroad executives, that's it. I don't have that. It, the, the universe has not provided that to me.
0: Yeah, that's something that I always see debated on Twitter and other social media between advisors. But more and more, it seems like everyone is kind of behind the idea that you should get a niche and having a real specific. You know, investor type is going to lead to more success because you know you're you're ingraining yourself in a very tight knit, specific community that has very specific problems, and therefore you know you develop a specialty in how to understand and navigate those issues for that specific type of person, right?
2: And that's fantastic. If there are, you know, I know that there are advisors that are very successful bloggers. People read them, they subscribe, and if they have that funnel to go out into the internet and have people funnel in and reach out to them, that's fantastic. I mean, that's just, that's that's truly wonderful. I have not spent much time writing or blogging simply because I'm just busy doing other things in my professional and personal lives. Um, And, you know, one other way of acquiring clients has been, you know, you you do something great for somebody, they like you, and they're at the water cooler, or they are at the polo match, or the car show, or on a Harley, and some of their, um, you know, someone close to them mentions a financial planning related item, or they ask them, you know, who do you have? And it's their cue to introduce me. And that has happened and it's great, but you know, I don't, I look back and I don't have, um, uh, you know, a very specific client profile that was specifically and consistently acquired through leveraging a media platform or um, you know, the internet by way of blogging. I think it's a fantastic model. It's just not one that I have tried.
0: Fair enough. And I think like any business, you kind of just have to do whatever works for you. And if you have a specific way that you're doing it, you have a niche that you're in, you know, you can draw people off of social media, you know, by all means that that's awesome. But I don't think for financial advisors, it's that cut and dry, you know, that you can just do one thing and those everyone will come flocking to you, right? Uh before we close out though, I wanted to see, did you have any questions for us?
2: So my question is, when is life going to return back to normal? I'm good on time. You guys can go.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I I meant to ask you that before. Um, you know, it it's bit pretty funny now. Um you know there's a, a virtual event going on this week that that I'm participating in and and there's a whole whole bunch of them coming up and it it just doesn't feel the same, right and it's been it just feels very weird and i I hope it's not the new normal because you know I, I think a big part of our industry is is those conferences right and now having to do it virtually, you know we've had to adapt a lot. Uh, I think for us, being a tech company. You know it was pretty easy but uh you know all of our stuff is on the cloud and so it was really quick and easy for us to just you know start working from our laptops immediately but curious for you vince being a financial advisor obviously i don't know if you were but a lot of them were using you know dinners with clients and you know in-person meetings having them in your office and stuff like that how did you how did you adapt to that change
2: You know, I love this question for many reasons. And for me and my practice, the COVID regime in which we have found ourselves is one during which I have made zero changes in terms of how I serve clients. So what's somewhat unusual about my practice is that, while I have an office in San Diego, the majority of the 50-ish families that I serve are not in or based in San Diego. And using Zoom, of course the telephone, and in-person meetings where I travel to them is something that I have been doing. So when air travel ceased to exist for a hot minute there, obviously I wasn't getting on planes, but. I was conducting Zoom meetings, nothing new there. Uh, you know, Many of the families that I serve are headed by folks that are on the right-hand side of the age bell curve. They're very used to talking on the phone. All my clients have my cell phone. I mean, it can be 5.30 in the morning, and as you know, I'm a very early riser. I get East Coast calls uh, at that hour, and it might be 9.45 at night, and I can get a call from a West Coast based client. So operationally, there's been no change. I went to my office only twice in four months and that was just to collect mail. Most, you know, the majority of which was just junk. Um, any checks and so forth were, I mean, we had someone going in every day to, you know, make sure that any urgent items, specifically client related items were being processed. But I just didn't go to my office. I had 37 voicemails from wholesalers um, that I I just delete, 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 delete. But I did travel to four different cities in the last month by plane, very carefully, I might add. I flew up to Oakland to uh, sponsor the Silicon Valley Horse Show. For a client who was active in that community. The flight was fantastic because one, there was zero line at TSA, which was the first. And two, most of those seats, like the majority of the seats on the plane were vacant. And I simply wore a mask and a face shield and gloves. I had 90,000 gallons of hand sanitizer with me. And, um, you just kind of make the best of it. So I am meeting with clients in person where I travel to them by plane. Um, And for me, there's really been no change. But I do know that for many advisors that have that conventional model of office down the street, all clients go to them, it's been a challenge because, you know, imagine this. You're an advisor. You've been an advisor for 25, 30 years, maybe more. You have all your staff there. They're at arm's length, multiple human beings right there in person. That's what you're used to. All your clients come to you. All of a sudden, all your staff is remote. You got to pick up the phone. Oh man, I got to dial number, 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 and then hope that they answer. And I got to click on the zoom meeting. It's, you know, you look at some of these Zoom calls and people, it looks like the phone is on their chest. Them thing You see right up their nostrils, you know, like, hold the phone out in front of you, please. <laughs> but it's, it's been challenging for some, but for me, no issue. So that
0: concludes episode three
2: of our Speaking Logically series. Just so a quick note. Uh, Vance, thanks a lot for
1: input. And, you know, clearly, uh, you have, you're a wealth of knowledge in this space.
2: Of course. And gentlemen, I sincerely appreciate the opportunity to hop on the podcast and, uh, you know, share a little humor and <laughs> hopefully bring some levity to the day of listeners.
0: You certainly did. Um, for those who are interested in getting in touch with Vance, you can go to vancebars.com. There's uh, a link there to sign up for his newsletter as well as his personal contact details if you want to talk to him about any of the stuff mentioned in this podcast. If you're interested in our Logically platform, which we talked a little bit about some of the ESG and tax stuff that we're working on, uh, you can go to logically.finance and check out the platform. That way you can get a free trial code for two free weeks right off that website. So thanks again, you guys, for listening, and we hope you guys are investing logically.